Um, If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 9. That is where uh, we are going to be this morning. And and before we do that, I I just want to share with you kind of what what we what we're praying for as leaders here at Aletheia Church, what um, we desire uh, to see God do in and through us, and and, and one of those things is that we want to see um, you guys and, and us collectively engaging, um, be, being engaged, being encouraged, being equipped, and being empowered uh, to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. That's that's what this is all about. If we're not doing that, we're doing something wrong. And so in, in that, right, one of the things that we, we really value here and what we think is probably one of the top priorities, or if not the top priority, uh, that, that we take very seriously as a value here at Aletheia Church is uh, we value God's word. We care deeply about God's word. We believe it is uh, the primary source uh, for uh, reproof and correction. And so because of that, uh, we, we, we want to invest God's word into you. We believe that is uh, the primary way that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will change you and transform you, which is what we're going to talk about today. So um, I know we've been saying the last couple weeks that we have scripture journals for you guys. If you don't have one already, um, we've got them in. They finally arrived. So if you would love a scripture journal and have not gotten one yet, just raise your hand. We've got some people walking around that will hand one to you. Don't worry. It's not a sales pitch or anything like that. We just want you to have the book of Acts in your hand, and what you'll notice on those scripture journals is one side will have the word of God and the other side is blank so that you can take notes, write down anything that God may be speaking to you uh, during our time in the word. And I would just encourage you that if you call Aletheia Church your home and you're going to be here consistently, that you just bring those back with you every week. Um, I, I think that you will notice over time that if you journal and take notes and process through God's word as you pray, uh, it will be greatly beneficial to you. So if you haven't got one, just keep your hand raised and we'll make sure you get one. All right, here we go. All right, so I want to pose a question to you guys this morning, and I need full honesty and transparency. You ready? Who here likes reality TV? Okay. Like half the room. Okay, someone's like, all right, calm down, all right? People are allowed to like different things, like relax, right? Unless it's The Bachelor, then God is judging you, okay? Some of the ladies like, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me, let me, I'm already off task, but we're going for it. Ladies, be honest with me. How many of those marriages have made it? Ain't nobody talking right now. You don't want to talk about that, do you? You just want to talk, he gave him the rose, the rose. My wife used to watch that show until I belittled her, her to the point where she quit watching it. This is a true story, right? Not my proudest moment, all right? Just be, give me a second here. I walked in one day. We're watching that show. She's watching it, and I walk in. They are on a helicopter landing on the side of a Swiss Alp for a date. No wonder these things don't make it. When he goes back home and she has to live on a, on a pig farm, right, <laughs> right? No wonder the relationship didn't make it, right? So just relax, okay? We can all make fun of The Bachelor. It's terrible, okay? (laughs) Now that I've alienated half the congregation, (laughs) 
my wife loves reality TV, right? Some of it good, some of it bad. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, there's some of it I like as well. And I was thinking through like the most popular reality TV shows and, and was like, why, why do we like this stuff? And as I started sitting there thinking and just reflecting on it this past week, I was like, okay, well, let's think about this, right? We've got, we've got American Idol. You have someone who's an undiscovered nobody who in a matter of 40 seconds can be given a ticket to go to Hollywood and be transformed into a pop star literally overnight, right? Think about uh, the biggest loser, right? People who are overweight and unable to take care of themselves go through these huge transformations of seeing major life change and losing a bunch of weight, right? Or even my wife's favorite, Fixer Upper, right? Terrible homes that no one would ever want to step foot in. If you've got a couple million dollars, you can have your dream house, right? Because they transform these horrible homes that look like they haven't been touched in 90 years, and all of a sudden, they're just amazing, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, by the way. Confession, I like Fixer Upper too. Chip is my spirit animal. Love that guy, right? Like, if I was a handyman, tall, dark, and handsome, I would be Chip Gaines, right? That would, like, be my, be my goal in life, right? But think about all those shows and what I just shared, like, what was the common characteristic between all three of them, right? Something, something undiscovered, something unloved, something unworthy, something that we would consider low or bad, right, is transformed into something amazing, right? And I think what we see is we aren't so much interested in those shows because they're reality television. We're interested because as, as human beings, we love stories about transformation, we identify with that. I mean, think about even what the American dream is and what we have been told the American dream is, that you can be nobody, come from nothing, and make it and be somebody as an American. Right? That, that culturally, we are just so attracted and drawn to stories of transformation and redemption. And guys, that is what our story focuses on this morning in Acts chapter 9. And what I want us to see as we look through this story and we understand Ananias' role with Paul and, and, and touch on what we even talked about a little bit last week is that oftentimes our focus is only on the person who gets transformed. But as Luke records what happens here in, in chapter 9 of, of his, his, um, his account of what happened in the early church, right? he's going to share what happened to Paul, but he's going to share God's role. He's going to share Ananias' role. And he is going to share how oftentimes in these stories of transformation of what God is doing, it's not just one singular person person who's the focus of the transformation, but that God in his mercy and his wisdom and his grace uses people in our lives to bring about transformation. And so last week, if you were here, Pastor Daniel did an excellent job of leading us through those first nine verses of chapter nine. And what we saw was Saul was the most unlikely convert to Christianity that we've seen up until this point in the book of Acts, right? We saw that he was privileged, educated, held deep convictions, and was a Pharisee. We saw in, in verses one and two, let me read those to you really quickly, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
Guys, Saul was a bounty hunter. I mean, in all, in all seriousness, that's what he was doing. He had been given full reign and authority by the Jewish religious authority to be a bounty hunter looking and hunting down Christians. And on his way to Damascus, Jesus shows up, blinds him, tells him to stop persecuting him, which Pastor Daniel did just a great job unpacking last week, how Jesus relates with us and meets us in our suffering and persecution, so much so that he doesn't say to Saul, you are persecuting my church. What does he say? You are persecuting me. Don't ever say that Jesus isn't with you in your suffering, guys. Right? He's, he is there deeply concerned, deeply involved, so much so that he actually identifies it with himself as well. And then Daniel reminded us of four things, right? Every salvation is this sovereign. I'm not gonna get into that. Go back and listen to his sermon if you wanna do that. Not every salvation is this dramatic, Every salvation has the same intention. And what he said there was that God saves us and saves others so that we can be a blessing to the world around us. And that no one is beyond salvation. No one. And this week our story picks up exactly where we left off last week. Paul has walked into Damascus. He's completely blind and he's just sitting and waiting. So let me read those verses that Kiara read for us earlier. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Guys, I have two things I want you to take away from our text this morning. That's it. Two things. The first one is this. God can transform anyone. He does not care. 
The God who spoke the universe into existence, who created human life, who created the, the, the tides of the ocean, the orbit of the planets can transform anyone. He is not beholden to the philosophy of man. He is not beholden to the things that bind us and hold us down. He can transform anyone. The second thing I want you to notice is this. God chooses to use us in that transformation. I want to start with focusing in on that point, that God chooses to use us. He chooses to use the church, right? His blood-bought children in that transformation. Let me ask you guys this. For those of you guys that would say that you're pretty familiar with the scripture and you've studied it quite a bit and feel like you know it, can you tell me anything about Ananias? let Let me just... Full disclosure, I spent probably more time than I should have in my preparation for my sermon this past week trying to find anything that I could possibly find on this guy. So I was like, it's just, you know, like there was another Ananias, but that guy was, is already dead. We saw that back in Acts chapter five, right? So like clearly this is not the same guy, right? So who is this guy, right? Like, like yeah, I get who Philip is, and, and we've seen that Stephen's been martyred already, and I know who the apostles are, but, but who is this guy? And I researched for hours, and guess what I found? Nothing. What you see recorded in these few verses about this guy named Ananias is all we ever see about him in the scriptures. He wasn't some famed evangelist. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't an apostle. From all accounts... This appears to be the only time he shows up in the scriptures. He, however, has one of the most important moments in the history of the early church. Because what we're going to see from here on out in the book of Acts is how God has transformed Paul and uses him, but he uses this simple disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Like, pause and process this for a second. A lot of you guys should be able to relate with this. Most of you guys aren't preaching to 100 plus people every week like like myself or Daniel. Most of you guys, even if you have a sphere of influence in within ministry, it might be in a small group setting, right? The average Christian, right, has a sphere of influence within the church, the body of Christ, right? Doing ministry, loving on people, doing evangelism, doing discipleship, loving on people, serving the poor, serving widows, serving orphans, whatever it may be that you're involved with as a follower of Jesus, usually is limited to 12 people or less. And yet one of the most fascinating moments in the early church happens because one of those ordinary followers of Jesus and his obedience to what God has asked him to do. Put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a second. You have heard of this guy named Saul. He is prolific in the Holy Land at this point. He is well known amongst the church. Saul, the murderer and church persecutor, is in Damascus. Not only is he in Damascus, but he has letters allowing him to apprehend and kill Christians. You know this. And Jesus shows up to you in a vision and says to you, hey, I want you to go to Saul. The guy who has the authority to arrest you when you go into him, that's the guy I want you to go see. 
I want, I want you to go. What would your reaction be to that? Right? So many of us are like, God, God, I'll just do anything. I'll do anything you want me to do, God. And God's like, all right, go to Saul. Oh, not that guy. That guy can throw me in jail. That guy can have me killed. That guy can pull me away from my family. That guy can ruin everything. That guy can destroy the, the work of the church here in Damascus. Yeah, God, no thanks. Like, I'll do anything for you, but not that. That's a little crazy. That, that seems more like a suicide mission, not a church mission. But look at what Jesus says to Ananias. Not only go visit him, but restore his sight. That's right. The murderer and crooked Pharisee, go heal him. Don't just go talk to him. Don't just go share the gospel with him. Lay your hands on him and heal him. The guy who had your brother Stephen stoned and murdered, go, go heal that guy. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being asked by Jesus to go love the biggest mortal enemy you could possibly imagine? And as I was thinking through this, how many of us are asked to do something by God and it just seems impossible, so we won't? Not realizing that God wants us to go try to do the impossible because he can make it possible. You know, one of my longtime friends, he's still not a follower of Jesus, um, but I've known him since I was in preschool. Our original bond was over the Ninja Turtles which are now a thing again, I've learned. Right? There's a funny story in preschool. My, my mom said she picked me up from my second day of preschool, and she goes, I'm just so proud of your son and his, and his, and his friend. They're, they're talking about painters. <laughs> and my mom was like, what? <laughs> yeah, they know who Leonardo is and, and Michelangelo. I just think it's amazing that you've taught your son so much culture. <laughs> my mom was like, yeah, they're talking about turtles and a rat <laughs> that fight crime with swords and a bow staff. She's like, oh, you let your three-year-old do that? <laughs> right, but I've had this friend since, since, honestly, like VPK3. And, and, I, and, and as, I, as I started following Jesus in college, the Lord started laying on my heart, you, you need to go talk to him. You need to, you need to share with him uh, what has happened in your life. You need, you need to tell him about what God has done for him. You need to share the gospel with him. And over and over again, I just felt like God was telling me to do this thing over and over again. And over and over again, I just resisted, right? Because like, here was the reality. I, I, I know my friend. He is not a candidate for salvation, anti-religion, thinks Christians are stupid, hates the Christian worldview, right? Attacks it at every turn, right? Just could not dislike Christians more and actually hated when I became one. Hated it. What is wrong with you, man? Like, why would you do that? It's so stupid. And so God's just, he's just laying this on me over and over again. I'm like, God, are you serious? God, all right, fine. But I'm telling you, one thing is going to happen. I'm going to start sharing the gospel with him, and I'm going to lose a friend. That's what's going to happen. 
I know it. Here's the reality, though. God is good. God is bigger, right, than I thought was going to happen. And there was a period of time where God allowed me to faithfully witness to him and other people faithfully witness to him. And he started out in that process, in that journey, like completely rejecting and completely not wanting to have any conversations about God. And over the course of months, God just started slowly working on him. He would come watch me preach. Right? He, would, he would talk to other friends in our, in our circle of friends who had, had come to know the Lord. Right? He started hearing about how God had transformed my life and the life of others. And I remember something really profound one day. Right? He asked me this question. Right? The guy I thought would never want to talk to me about God. He said, Kevin, why does God need me though? Right, if all this is true, why does God need me? I was like, that's the fascinating thing. He doesn't. He wants you. You know what he said to me? He's like, I don't believe, but I wish I could. Right, you do not know what God can do. But by the way, guys, that guy's still not saved. I still pray for him frequently. Right? Pray that God would continue to use that, that, that work of planting and watering the soil that my friends and I have been doing for well over a decade now at this point, that one day God might reap a harvest and he would come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But he is not beyond salvation. He is not beyond the power of the Holy Spirit and of God to transform him. And just as God encouraged me to be obedient and step out in faith and come and overcome my preconceived ideas of what was going to occur in that interaction, God encourages Ananias here as well. And look at, look at, look at Ananias' response to Jesus. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How patient is God? Ananias says, God, I can't. God's response, you can and you will. Because Saul has an important job to fulfill for the glory of my name. Guys, I want you to hear me when I say this, and if you don't take anything else away from, from today, take this away. When God loves someone, nothing can be done to stop him. Nothing. It doesn't matter their past. It does not matter their worldview. It does not matter what their belief system is. It doesn't matter what culture they grew up in. It doesn't matter whether they like God or Christians. 
It doesn't matter if they're interested in having conversations or hostile towards God. When God pursues to rescue and redeem his children, they will respond. And the beautiful thing is, he invites us to come along and be obedient and be a part of the process. I mean, think of the examples we have seen so far, just, just in the book of Acts, right? In Acts chapter eight, we saw Simon the magician, right? Powerful guy using witchcraft and wizardry, not Harry Potter style, but that kind of stuff. Well known in the city of Samaria, well, well known as both a leader and as a powerful man and economically powerful as well. And what does God do? God says, no, Simon is mine. And he sends Philip. And Philip preaches the gospel and performs signs and miracles. And guess what? Simon believes. God didn't have to, God didn't have to use Philip, but he does. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Maybe religiously sensitive, right? But powerful man right, returning to Ethiopia after being and worshiping God in Jerusalem. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah as Philip just happens to roll up. What does God do? Philip, go to him. Philip, go speak to him now. And what does God do? Saves him. And then as we see here in Acts chapter nine, Saul on the road to Damascus receives a vision, but Ananias is going to be used by God to finish sharing the gospel and lead him to Jesus. I love verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Guys, if that's not obedience, I don't know what is. He walks in, lays hands on the very man who has murdered and persecuted his brothers and sisters. goes to him, says, Jesus has sent me to you as he promised you. I, I am here to restore your sight and see you filled with the Holy Spirit. Aletheia Church, what would it look like if we had this level of obedience to the calling of God on our lives? To take seriously the power of God to transform lives. What would we see? Will we continue to see the safe version of evangelical Christianity and pop culture that we see? Or might the book of Acts not seem quite so outlandish and crazy to us? If just by simple obedience, we trusted that God was God and wanted to do things in and through us. If we boldly shared the gospel Trusting that God can transform anyone, I can tell you this, it's gonna be overwhelming, it's gonna be messy, but as God uses us and God transforms people, it's gonna be amazing. 
we'll see people literally go from death to life. We'll see people literally go from blind to sight because that's what God does. Because God can transform anyone. Look at verses 18 and 19. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is it. This is the culmination of Paul's conversion to Jesus Christ. This is it. It is, it is clear that with Paul, still called Saul at this point, that there might even still be some inkling of doubt in his mind as he's sitting there blind in Damascus. And as Ananias shows up, Ananias says, the guy you met on the road was really Jesus. Jesus is really who he said he was, and I'm here to prove it to you. He sent me to heal you. And he lays hands on him, and scales fall from his eyes. More on that in a second. He's able to see again, from blind to sight. Now, I don't know about you guys, right? But I can actually relate a little bit with what Saul is going on, going on here with. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> what Saul is going through. There we go. That is the English word I was looking for. I can relate a little bit with what Saul is going through. A couple years ago, I was in Memphis for a pastor's cohort. And we were taking a break, right? And out in the lobby of this church outside of Memphis, I, I, am, I am standing there and all of a sudden, the room just starts going dark. I mean, just like completely dark. I, it's like I was underwater with no light. I'm like, man, this is weird. Like, this is, like, what is going on here? Right? And so... You know, I'm a guy, so I don't take it seriously. I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is, I must be dehydrated. There ain't no level of dehydration that leads to whatever was going on with my eyes that day, I can tell you right now. And so I walk in, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and like, I, I can't read the words on the page that are in front of me. It's a jumbled mess. And I'm like, man, like, what is going on? So at this point, right, now I'm like, man, something's up. Right, so I step out and I go to the bathroom. Well, I can't type on my phone, right? But fortunately, our phones can do everything for us at this point, so I just talked to it, and it sent a message to my wife, and I was like, hey, I think I'm going blind. <laughs> and I get back this text that's like, what? It's like, yeah, like, I just can't see. So I go back in, still haven't told, by the way, any of the pastors that are in the room there with me. You think, like, who, like, would probably be okay to help you? Like, a pastor, maybe? Yeah. So I haven't told them anything. So I'm like, all right, hold on. Let's, let's, like, let's, let's process through this, what's going on. So I start closing one eye and just saying, like, hey, maybe it's one eye or, or, or I need to know if it's both. So I start closing one eye. Well, as I close my, my uh, left eye, I start to realize something. After about 30 seconds, my vision starts coming back perfectly. But the moment I would open my eye back up, darkness, right? And vision was coming in and out, and I started to feel sick and disoriented, whatever else. And so I'd, I'd finally tell the pastors what's going on. They're like, oh, we don't know what, what you're doing. And so I texted a friend of mine who was in the medical field, and he's like, dude, you might have a detached retina. You need to go to the emergency room. I'm like, no, nah, I'll fly home tomorrow. Like, it's fine. Like, it's not a big deal. I've got an HMO. I don't want to pay, you know, all the things. And so I get back, and... 
over time, right, my vision starts coming back a little bit, but it just goes in and out. And what, and what I learned after going to the doctor was that I had this weird condition that usually only happens in people in their 70s plus. So praise the Lord that I got to experience that in my 30s. <laughs> a hole had ripped in the back of my eye, and I was leaking fluid onto the back of my eye. And it was literally blinding me. And our brain puts together those images, and once one of those images started getting super distorted and weird, I was just blind. It was trying to put the images together, but one of the eyes couldn't see, so guess what? It just gave me the blind image, right? Eventually, what started happening is my brain was just like, that eye's not good, and it just stopped using it. But as, right, I went through some sort of laser surgery, it wasn't as cool as you think it is, by the way. So the doctor was like, yeah, we're going to do laser surgery. I'm like, man, this sounds awesome. Like, what's this going to look like? It's terrible. They like hold your eyelid open and then someone holds your head because they don't trust you not to move, right? And you're just sitting there like basically with this thing suctioned to your eyeball and they're just shooting a light right in the back of it. <laughs> Enjoy the story, right? <laughs> but you know what started happening is that as that hole was closed by those lasers and then started to heal and then the scar tissue started to heal, my brain started using both my eyes again. My peripheral vision started coming back and my sight came back. And guys, I cannot tell you how joyous I was for that. And Saul, who's been sitting there for three days without food and water and is blind, thinking, what in the world is going on? I've gone from this prominent position in Jewish life. I'm a religious leader. I know God. I'm high up in Roman society, and now I'm struck blind, which is basically a death sentence culturally in this time period. Because if you had some sort of uh, medical uh, abnormality, it was perceived as God's judgment on you, that you were a sinner, and God was justly punishing you for your sin. So he knew what this meant. And then Ananias comes in, lays his hands on him, says, Jesus heals you. And it scales fall off his eyes. He can see again. He rises and is baptized because, guys, he is no longer doubting who Jesus Christ is. He takes food and is strengthened, and as we are going to see, Saul is going to become Paul, and he's going to live a life for the gospel that many of us couldn't do in three full lifetimes. Not because Saul was the only one that could do it, but because God had ordained that he would be the one to do it. He's been transformed. He goes from persecutor to proclaimer in the matter of an instant. That's the power of God. Do you see the beauty here? God can transform the hardest and most wicked of hearts, bring them to their knees, and then grant them a new heart, grant them life so that they might be born again. Guys, I have seen God do some amazing transformations in people. And the longer you choose to dedicate your life to the cause of Jesus Christ, to be a member of the church, the body of Christ, 
you'll get to see it and experience it too. If you really roll up your sleeves and do the types of things that Jesus asks us to do, you will receive the privilege it is to see God transform people. I've seen God transform marriages that looked like there was absolutely no hope. I have seen God take drug addicts, transform their lives, and they now preach the gospel. They're pastors. I've seen sex addicts overcome their sexual addiction and slavery and be transformed to love Jesus and serve him as their new master. I've seen people addicted to religion and legalism rescued from the bondage and chains of performance and legalism and given new life transformed with the hope of Jesus Christ. I've seen atheists go from hating God and the very notion of him to preaching that God exists and being some of the best apologists I've ever been around. I've seen the depressed and the hopeless be given new life and new hope, renewed in the fact that Jesus Christ loves them and died for them. The list is endless, and I've only been a follower of Jesus for a little over 12 years. Some of you guys have seen probably hundreds if not thousands of lives transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. But here's the funny thing. The more I'm around, the less shocked I am about it because God is in the business of transforming lives. It's the whole reason he sent Jesus in the first place is he transforms and redeems people for his glory and namesake. Right, this is why I think Paul probably had Acts chapter 9 on his mind when he's writing his second letter to the Corinthians. Right? Look at what he says in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He's just got done telling them everyone's favorite memory verse. Right? Therefore, everyone is a new creation in Christ. Right? The old has passed away, the new has come. Right? That's the passage that everyone focuses in on and loves here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But look at what Paul says. All of this is from who? God who through Christ reconciled. Do you guys understand what that word reconciliation means? It means transformation. It means where there was no hope of, re of relationship, of unity, of love, God fixed it and transformed it. Christ reconciled us to himself and what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Guys, those two verses sum up exactly what I said the two main points of this passage are. God transforms and he invites us along for the ride. That's it. Is it any shock to you that the man that went through the very story we see this morning is then telling everybody else this is what we're supposed to be doing? Seeing God transform lives and letting him use us. It's amazing. That as God is reconciling the world to himself, that's transformation, he entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. He uses us. Here's what I want to leave you guys with this morning. I've got two questions for you to consider. And the first one is this.
do you believe in God's power and ability to use you as a witness and see someone's life transformed? Because I can tell you this, he can do it and he wants to use you. He does. He's literally using other brothers and sisters every day to do exactly this. And he wants to use you as well. The second question is this. Do you believe that God can transform your own life? And, and guys, I'm, I'm not talking some theological, intellectual, right, position from Scripture, can God transform me? I'm talking about this moving from the head to the heart. Do you really believe that God can transform your life? Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you are struggling with the same habitual sins and patterns and it seems hopeless. I'm never gonna get over this. I'm never gonna overcome it. I'm never gonna put this sin to death. It's never gonna happen. Maybe you're here this morning because you have a Christian friend who won't stop bugging you and you finally decided to come to church just so they'd stop asking you to come and you're hearing all this and you're like, God can't transform me. You don't know. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know what's happened in my past. You don't know what's going on in my present. You, it, it's easy for you to stand up there and say that God transformed this guy 2,000 years ago, but you don't know what's going on in my life now. Let me tell you this. It does not matter what you are struggling with. If you study the scriptures in their totality, you will see that God is in the business of ripping the scales off of our eyes and allowing us to see for the first time. To see the beauty and glory of Jesus. I always love what, what Luke records there because when he says, he just says it so matter-of-factly, right? Something like scales just fell off his eyes and he just moves on. And you're like, what? But think about that for a second. Those scales were an outward expression of Saul's inward condition. He was blind to his own sin. He was blind to Jesus. And yet God sends Ananias and Jesus rips the scales off and as Saul sees again, his heart is completely transformed to follow Jesus for the first time. And the same is true for any of us that call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. I want to share a story with you guys. And it's from um, one of my favorite writers. Um, his name is C.S. Lewis. And he, he wrote a series of, of children's novels called The Chronicles of Narnia. Right, and everyone's favorite one is The Lion, and the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right, I, I know that, I get that. Some of you are shaking your head no. Right, right. In my opinion, the best one is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And, he, and here's why. Right, I want to read to you an excerpt from that book. To give you some background to what we're about to read um, in this passage, 
the character that you're going to hear is a, a, a child by the name of Eustace. He's the character that you love to hate in the book. I mean, in all seriousness, you hate him. The same way that you read Acts chapter 9, you're like, Paul is the worst. That is Eustace in this book. He's selfish, greedy, whiny, spoiled, and complains constantly. It's the best friend, right? It's just everyone's favorite. And he ends up in Narnia with his cousins, Lucy and Edmund, who have been to Narnia before. And he's taken aboard a ship with Prince Caspian, who is searching for uh, these lost knights. And the ship stops at several islands, and, and one of... Uh, the islands that it stops out, Eustace gets off of the ship and he finds himself in a pretty horrific situation. Um, he wanders away from the crew and he happens upon a cave when he's on this island. And when he gets to the cave, he witnesses the death of a dragon inside of the cave. And, and, and when he's sure that the dragon is dead, he, he enters into the cave and he discovers this huge treasure chest there. And Eustace, being the selfish little brat that he is, begins loading his pockets with the treasure inside the cave. And you hear his thoughts as he's doing so. Uh, C.S. Lewis records what Eustace is thinking as he's doing this. And he's, he's trying to figure out, how can I get as much of this treasure on board this ship without anyone else finding out about it? Because he has no desire to share the wealth with everyone else on the ship. And he ends up falling asleep on the treasure only to wake up and find that he himself has turned into a dragon. He's miserable. He's lonely. But he's got his treasure. And he finally gets around to succeeding to communicate to his shipmates what has happened to him. And he realizes in that moment that he is forever stuck in the predicament that he's found himself in. And it is here that Aslan enters the picture. And Eustace realizes that Aslan wants Eustace to follow him. And all this time, if you haven't read any of the books, you realize that as, as Lucy and Edmund have talked about Aslan to Eustace, he's just like, get out of here with this nonsense, right? This, this lion who gave his life up for everyone else and then rose again, yeah, whatever, I'm going to really follow that guy, whatever. And so he ends up, right, talking to Aslan, and they're, they're down by this bubbling well with, with mar marble steps going down into it. And this is where I want to pick up the actual story and read it to you. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg, right? This is Eustace talking. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness. 
or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again and this underskin peeled off beautifully and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And the lion said to me, and I don't know if he spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. Let me pause here for a second, guys. If you can't see the imagery of what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate to us. As as Eustace is clawing at at his scales, he's trying to transform himself. By his own power, by his own wisdom, by his own might, he's trying to make himself clean and acceptable. And what's he finding? He's unable to do so. And Aslan sits there mercifully watching him over, again, over and over again claw at his scales and be unable to do so. And then he says, you'll have to let me undress you. And so I lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought he had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like a bilio, and I have no idea what that means. I guess it's a British colloquialism in the 30s and 40s. (laughs) It hurts like a bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been before them. And there was at last smooth and soft as peeled, switch and smaller than I had been before. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. 
And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You'd think me a simple phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and they are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's. But I was glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other, in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. Guys, I love that story because that's what Jesus does for us. We try and try to rip at the scales of our hardened hearts to make things happen, to, to make ourselves clean before a holy God, and it cannot be done. But once Eustace surrenders to Aslan, he transforms him. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. As the pain of ripping off the scales from our own heart and hearts is done, he transforms us to love, to trust, and to believe. I can't speak for any of you guys. But I can speak for myself. My testimony and my story sounds an awful lot like Eustace's. I was bitter. I was angry. I was hiding. I was selfish. I was self-sufficient. I loved myself and no one else. And there came a time, like Eustace, I realized my own condition and I tried to change myself. I tried to transform my life. Tried to do the right things, be a good person, do everything that I'm told I'm supposed to do. And guess what happened? I couldn't get out of my own way. Because the deeper I dug, the more wicked I found I was. And during all this time, my annoying, pesky little sister kept telling me about Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He can transform you. He loves you like no one else could love you. He cares for you like no one else could care for you. He'll restore you in a way you can never restore yourself. He'll give you a life that you can never imagine. And when I surrendered and trusted him, Jesus completely transformed my heart. Guys, I can't describe it other than that it was supernatural transformation. I went from distrusting people and using people to loving people and wanting to serve people. Literally overnight. I can't, I can't describe it. I went from not caring about others' plights and what was going on in their lives to wanting to alter the course of my life in a way that was going to make much of Jesus and help others. Because of the power of Jesus Christ to transform my life, and he did so. Friends, let Jesus transform you. Let 
Jesus, use you. Don't try to change yourself. Don't put back on the shackles of religion. But pursue obedience to Christ. Let him transform you. And in that, we will see a greater worship of Jesus as we become growing followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you guys are at this morning. I don't know what God is doing in your life already. I can, I, can, I can share with you from my own experience, God was doing much in my life before I ever came to that realization, that moment where the scales were ripped off my eyes. But here at Aletheia Church, every week we give you an opportunity to respond to God's word. So I'm gonna invite a few people to come forward and pray. Jackie, if you'll come forward, and Daniel and Leah, uh, Derek and Caitlin, and then Theo and Vinay, and some of the people I talked to, if you'll go stand in the back. And we're gonna turn the lights down here. I'm gonna invite the band back up. And here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're a Christian here this morning, and you have not been allowing Jesus to transform a part of your life, will you come pray with somebody? Will you come ask for prayer and ask that God would transform your heart to grant you repentance so that you might live for Jesus? If you're not a Christian and you want to talk and come, come pray with somebody and talk to somebody about what it looks like to begin a relationship with Jesus and to have your life completely transformed the way that Saul of Tarsus was, the way that Simon the Magicians was, the way that the Ethiopian eunuchs was, the way that my own life was transformed. If you want to talk to somebody about that and have them pray with you and pray for you, we would love and be honored to do that. We're also going to take communion during this time. And as I remind you guys frequently when I'm up here, when we take communion, communion is not an act of penance, right? It is an act of worship where we take the body and blood of Christ and we recognize that Jesus willingly gave up his own flesh and blood for us so that the wrath of God would be satisfied and that we would be redeemed and bought for by Jesus. And that when we partake in the, in, in the elements of communion, we are thanking and worshiping Jesus. And we are by faith trusting that his grace is sufficient for us. So if you've had some time to reflect in, in, your, in your chair and repent of sins, well, you, you can freely come up and take of communion and worship Jesus with us. And then let's leave this place today believing that we serve a God who is able to transform because he is. Let's pray.